everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Every week, I get to talk to an incredible array of like so talented people and about their passions and professions. Get to do that all here. So, happy 2024. A little bit about me, if it's your first time here. Um, I've been covering the food, beverage, and hospitality scene for over 20 years now through a variety of outlets. I've got print, online, TV, radio, podcast, social, uh, and now YouTube. Um, so you know the list, are you on it.com, the online easy that tells you about every restaurant happening. Uh, of restaurant openings, food and wine promos, all the happenings around the city. It's all happening for you there. Every Sunday, you tune into Foodie and the Beast, DC's only food, wine, and radio variety show. We just celebrated 15 years. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Thread, LinkedIn, YouTube, all the platforms. I'm everywhere. Um, so, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm taking it a little bit slow for the month of January. I wanted some time for a bit of a refresh. And, you know, I've really been thinking about Industry Night this year and how fortunate I've been to be able to share such, share such incredible stories from people who really do the work. I mean, it's such an honor for me because I'm just a, a conduit for those stories to actually come out. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to some of the shows from this year or um, you've heard one or two, I really advise you to go back. There were some just amazing ones, and I'm just so grateful. Now, if you listen to the show on uh, a podcast platform, I thank you. But you know you can also see what we're doing on YouTube, which just, like, totally changes it for me. It makes it so much fun um, because, you know, Adding the YouTube component allows you to see like what's actually happening. And plus I had all these fun residencies. I was at the wine lair, at the point, and at the Watermark Hotel. Um, it just allows for so many different interactions. And um, I don't know, what can I say, man? But like so much more in 2024, right? More and more and more in 2024. And that actually starts with my guest today. So Okay, you hear me talk about my other show, Foodie and the Beast, all the time. It's been on for 15 years, yada, yada, yada. I know you know. But, you know, in my 15 years of doing that show, I really have had mostly amazing shows. And I'm not just saying that because it's my show. Like, it feels good. The vibe is great. Once in a while, a guest gets nervous or struggles, but it's usually salvageable. Yeah, except for this one time. Well, a few months ago... Emma Jagaz, this incredible first-generation organic vegetable farmer who founded Moon Valley Farm, was on. And she was, like, on. Like, she has such an amazing story. And um, every other guest on that show, like, just did not bring it that day. And I just felt like Emma's terrific story got totally overshadowed by the fact that nobody else was bringing it in studio. And I was disappointed and angry. I'm still a bit angry about it, but listen, we could talk about media training or being ready for an interview on another day. Actually, I think, um, I think I'm going to do like a quick little video on that. All right, stay tuned. I'm going to put a pin in that. But anyway, so I was hoping Emma would not hold that against me when I asked her to join me on this show because Moon Valley Farm is this like year round certified organic vegetable farm. It's got an online 
farmer's market. It is home delivery. It's got a CSA. And not only does she service many of the Michelin-starred restaurants that you dine in in this city, but she also helps school systems. Anyway, she's got a lot of stuff going on. So Emma's going to join us in just a second. Now, you know I've been out and about because I can't help myself and there's so many good places to go. So I'm just going to list off a couple of these places that you should definitely be putting on your own list. So I want to start with Amparo Fondita. This is Christian Iravan. He is a Mexican chef. He has finally opened up his own place. It is a little tiny restaurant, which there are so few of these days, in DuPont Circle. And he's really serving the cuisine of Mexico City. Real authentic flavors, amazing products, um, and the food just really sings. I did hit the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington's holiday party. They always do it in January. Oh my God, so much fun. So many great people. It's like a prom for me because I know like so many people there and everybody gets to reconnect and it's just great. And then late night we went to Old Ebbet. So if you are struggling like after 10 o'clock for where to go for a really good meal late at night, Old Ebbet totally has your number. And I have to tell you, we walked in at like 1030 in the evening and I was shocked because the place was pulsating and packed. Um, and it was perfect. So keep that in your back pocket. You're welcome. Uh, I had friends in town and I wanted to do a high tea. So we wound up at the St. Regis, which does a really glorious afternoon tea. Um, it's a totally guilty pressure of mine. If you know me or if you've listened to me, you know I am like a tea fanatic. I have my my cup of tea right here, but I love sitting down for an hour or two and eating the scones and the little sandwiches. Um, I mean, honestly, it's all about the clotted cream. I just, I just really want the clotted cream and some really good tea. I know people drink champagne at these things. I don't really get it. I don't understand why I'm supposed to hold a glass of champagne and a cup of tea, but you do you. I'll do me. I'll stick with my tea. Um, I stopped at Immigrant Food at the Planet Word Museum. And if you haven't been to the Planet Word Museum, do not think it's just for little ones because it really isn't. It's a fabulous and beautiful museum, very well curated. And immigrant food is in the property. And I don't know, I just wasn't expecting a lot from it. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I really wasn't. The food is delicious. It has a beautiful setup. It is a great place for lunch and I will totally be back. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about Ruben Garcia and Casa Teresa. I know I discussed it um, probably back in November when it first opened, but I did go back. I actually did a chef's tasting menu in front of the kitchen. It has this massive oven because it's all fire. All the dishes are put in the fire. So like last night when it was frigid, we were all sitting in front of the fire and just watching the show, the chefs. The food is delicious. Um, Everything he's doing there is amazing. Uh, check out my Instagram posts for both Casa Teresa and the tea at the St. Regis because of, and Amparo Fondito, it'll answer all your questions. Okay, now on to Emma Jacaz. She's of Moon, Mood Valley Farm. Emma grew Moon Valley from like, a, as a one woman show, just taking a quarter acre for 12 people. And now she's got like 20 people working for her. She's got 70 acres. She's feeding thousands. So, hi, Emma. There you are. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you on the show, and it's good to see you. Um, so let's sort of talk about how you got into farming, because this wasn't 
you weren't planning on making this a job, right? Like this is just something you wanted to do. Yeah. So I started growing food for the very first time when I was pregnant with my firstborn when I was 23 years mm -hmm. old. I, okay. yeah. So I hadn't grown anything before then and never, ever considered the career of farming before that moment. Mm -hmm. I started growing arugula and a couple of tomatoes on my apartment balcony because I read that arugula was really great for baby brain development. And oh. I really wanted to develop my baby's brain. I thought, well, this is a one shot deal. Let's do a good job. <laughs> um, but like arugula is so delicate. You know, mm -hmm. like when I think of arugula and what were you doing with it? Were you putting it in baby food? No. So I was still pregnant. I was just eating it raw um, oh, in salads okay. or on top of dishes, on top of, you know, a, a scramble or even maybe putting it in smoothies. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I really latched on to that. And when I started growing my own, I thought, oh, my God, this food tastes so much better than even the arugula I can get at the grocery store. You know, what's going on with this? Uh you know, and when I started growing food, I started looking at seed catalogs and the seed catalogs have these varieties of vegetables and fruits in there that I had never seen before. And so I started trying all these new specialty vegetables and I started growing a lot more in a garden. And by the time I had my second child, 16 months after my first, I okay. thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, I want to both raise my kids and work. And so I was trying to figure out what business I could start. And, and I thought, well, why not expand on my hobby of vegetable gardening and start a CSA program? My sister had told me about the community supported agriculture program. Um, that she was a part of in Vermont at the time. And, and I thought that is the coolest concept. I love it. It's going to be perfect. I can raise my kids and grow a big garden. And so I borrowed a quarter acre and started Moon Valley Farm in 2012. Okay. I, it's, that's such a, like you were inspired and I love that. But so how did you decide what you wanted to grow? I mean, you're like, okay, I'm going to do a CSA. I mean, did you, ask people questions were you like what would you like or do were you like this is what i want this is what i want to feed my children and this is what i'm going to plant so how did you how did you make those decisions and i apologize i lit some sage because i love the smell and it just like caught on fire so there's a little bit of smoke in my office <laughs> <laughs> well i hope it still smells good <laughs> it um, smells delicious but i mean i am <laughs> I am clearing out any bad vibes like they are Perfect. gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, to answer your question, it was a combination of both growing what I was confident that I could grow and asking the just 12 people that I was growing for what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of went for it if I thought I could grow it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I latched on to Elliot Pullman, who's an organic vegetable farmer in Maine, and he's put out some really great books as resources for farmers. And I read all his stuff and kind of mimicked his farming style. Um, and I, and what I really does that, what does that mean? What is, what, what was his style? What about his style was appealing to you? 
It's producing a lot of food organically on a really small scale using human tools for human powered tools for the most part. So mm -hmm. uh, rakes, broad forks, um, small, you know, little tillers and things like um, all that you can maneuver without having a tractor or a lot of, uh, you know, expensive equipment. Um, and so when I started the farm, I started with only $300. And uh, so the the appeal of hand tools really uh, spoke to my budget. <laughs> I bet. And how did you decide on what you were, like, first year, first yield, what were you planting? And I would love to know, like, some of the successes, like, when you look back in 2012, like, what were some of the successes and what were some of the failures? There were a lot of both. When you plan for a CSA program, you are are going for giving, you know, 12 people at the time, a really mixed variety of vegetables each week throughout the growing season. So in that season, I was committing to, a, I think, a 20 or maybe a 22 week season from okay. June through October. And so each week I had promised people about eight ripe different veggies. So I was constantly planting things like radishes and salad mix and turnips, uh, beets and carrots. And then I was taking care of longer season crops like tomatoes and eggplant and potatoes. And I, I had some uh failures in terms of quantities uh, where sure. i i planted way too many tomatillos i think that first year they got a ridiculous amount of tomatillos in <laughs> in their share and uh you know i learned what i needed to plant more of i think that's that's a huge part of the learning curve in being a farmer is how big are your successions because sometimes you get really ambitious and plant, you know, 200 feet of romaine lettuce. And then you realize that's enough lettuce for, you know, a, a wedding, <laughs> but you only have 12 people. Um, and so really dialing in those uh, was, it was a big learning curve in the beginning. I bet. And then what was it? Did people find out like, which came first, your expansion or people's like, how did it, how did it grow? The farm has grown from that 12 person, 20 year program to over mm -hmm. 600 people with a year round program, mostly from word of mouth. And I am just humbled and awed and delighted how people will share the share about us to their friends and family. Um, mm -hmm. The over the years, so tried, yeah. Oh, no, no. I was going to ask, like, but so people started asking about you. So the need was there, right? So you're like, oh, my God, I got to gotta grow some more veggies because people, more people want to join the CSA. Yeah. So how do you go about, so now at this point, you don't need to borrow the land, you need to buy land. So how did you do that? How did you find the land you wanted? How did you make sure that the soil was healthy? Um, how did you teach yourself that? I mean, there's a lot of talk about regenerative agriculture, and I know that's an, um, a key point for you. Like, can we talk through that a little bit? Because I know that help, helps fuel everything you're doing. Absolutely. 
I think my position as a as a parent and an organic farmer, really both starting around the same time, has informed my decisions really strongly throughout the whole farming process. You know, I started growing food for my baby's health, right? Mm -hmm. And so being really careful about the, you know, the inputs I put into growing that food is, has been of utmost importance from the very beginning. I didn't want to put anything in the soil that I didn't trust my my toddler crawling around in because they were actually crawling around <laughs> in the soil yeah, right. when I was putting it in right there. Um, you can see pictures from back in the day where, I mean, I my kids were all over my body all the time. And <laughs> as I'm bending in the soil or, um, hoeing a row while baby carrying. So I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't using any sprays or putting any amendments into the soil that could harm my child. Um, and of course, I didn't want anything uh, in my kitchen uh, that that I wasn't, that, or in anyone's kitchen that I wouldn't put in my own. So, mm -hmm. and at the same time, as a grower, you you really can't make it if there's massive holes in your produce or if there's a lot of bugs, bug, you know, if people find slugs in their salad, they're not going to come back for more salad. Right. <laughs> so I did have to really learn a lot of organic methods to make sure that my food was not only really safe, but also high quality and uh, like really grocery store quality, better than grocery store quality, you know, mm -hmm. um, a better shelf life, a better flavor, and also not looking holy and looking how people expect produce to come. So, so how did you, so what does that mean? Like, how do you do that? Like, I'll never forget. I have a friend who um, uh, is into collecting mushrooms and morels and I am the lucky receiver, like, cause they get so many Ooh, and I get bags yeah. of like those champagne morels, you know, in the spring, but I'll never forget one time. Like I took the morels out to rinse them and I saw like a little buggy crawl out. I was like, Oh my God, I was not expecting that. But mm -hmm. that's what happens when you pick up stuff from the forest floor, you know? Yeah, it does. So, um, we use a huge variety of methods to make sure that all of our different crops are uh, healthy and are able to sort of fend for themselves, mm -hmm. and, as well as uh, like to ward off insects and pests and other stress damage. Um, and that starts with paying attention to the soil health. Every single year, at least once a year, we're testing our soil and we send it to soil experts to help advise us on what amendments to put in the soil per crop. So even though we're growing over 40 different crops, we are getting recommendations from experts. And at this point, we're experts ourselves, too. And so using our own experience to make really strategic uh, soil amendment decisions, whether it's compost or uh, using cover crops or adding organic fertilizers or all of the above to make mm -hmm. sure that our plants are set up for health and nutrition before we even buy the seeds for the season. So that starts back in the fall. So last fall for all of 2024's crops, we were already planning what's going where, sending the soil samples out, talking to our soil health professionals, 
and making a, what's called an integrated pest management plan, or an IPM plan, to okay. make sure that each crop will not only be set up for success, but then when we encounter pests or diseases, um, or even before we encounter them, that we're set up to take quick, swift action to make sure that they are um, a really viable crop. So for okay. example- What does, um, oh good, you're gonna give examples. Cause I was yeah. curious like what ground cover means, like what, you know, as a non-farmer, but as an eater of, you know, mm -hmm. what you serve, I'm so curious like how, how you make it happen. Yeah, so uh, for arugula, um, we have to put what's called a floating row cover on it in the springtime to exclude the flea beetle from putting holes in the arugula. Now, yeah. arugula is just deliciously tasty to flea beetles, and they also love the spring season. And so the floating row cover is a white blanket. It kind of looks like a white blanket. It lets light mm -hmm. through at about 80% transmission. And it also will let water through that we irrigate generally under um, so that just on the soil level to conserve water. Mm -hmm. But um, the floating row cover will exclude all pests from going inside. So it's like it's a woven fabric that's very tight and won't won't let even these tiny flea beetles through and then the moment we take it off to start harvesting it we have to put it right back on so that those flea beetles don't find it um, we use floating row cover to also protect crops from frost damage mm -hmm. um, but we we use that that's that's a really big important tool in the organic farmers tool belt to exclude pests without any sprays or anything like that so we use it on squash to exclude the cucumber beetle until it flowers at which point we have to take the floating row cover off because we rely on honeybees to pollinate pollinate sure squash um so we we then are sort of open to potential damage from the cucumber beetle, which brings not only damage to the crop, but it generally also brings disease. So it's it's a double whammy uh, of a pest. But what we do to make sure that we have a consistent supply of squash is that we'll plant a second wave of it or a, a, another succession under floating row cover in a different location so that by the time either the harvest is spent um you know the plant's really just given us as much as it'll give or uh -huh. it succumbs to pests or disease damage we have a brand new crop right behind it that is protected that had been protected okay so it's ready to go and you said you do now year round yes. so what how does that work like the ground's frozen right now what does that mean are you do you have hoops like what how do you make it work we currently have nine greenhouses and high tunnels so mm -hmm. those are like little plastic and steel houses right? <laughs> um, so big steel hoops um, they're each a hundred feet long and 30 some feet wide and we are able to grow in the ground in those or in uh, planters. So in one of our greenhouses, mm -hmm. we have microgreens that are it's uh, growing there all year round. Mm -hmm. And then in the other ones, we have 
plants growing in the soil. So you can actually really extend the season, even though it's, you know, a ridiculous 16 degrees outside right now. Um, right. In, inside of those, because of the solar trap that that plastic house gives the soil, um, the soil will retain that heat for long enough to not actually freeze. So inside mm. these high tunnels, we have, you know, nice kale and spinach and parsley, cilantro, dill, Swiss chard, uh, collard greens, radishes, hackerai turnips, carrots. All so if they don't, they don't need, like, I think of like summer tomatoes, like I think I know nothing, so I'm not pretending that I know anything, but I think like, don't they need the heat of the sun to like help with their growth or whatever? Do, but do these vegetables sort of need the sunlight or do they just really, or not? Do you know what I mean? I know they need some, yeah. but do you know what I'm saying? Like they can, they can survive differently. So they do and they don't. Um, most plants don't actively grow in the Persephone period, which is the period we're actually still in of really low amounts of daylight. So starting mm -hmm. in November, the Persephone. So wait, it's, I, I got to interrupt you. That's from yeah. Greek mythology, right? Yeah. The Persephone, she like ate some pomegranate seeds and then her mother goes crazy when she's gone for for the winter, right? Isn't that mm -hmm. the story? Okay. Yeah, and so that's when things don't grow. They don't really right. actively grow, but we, so we grow them to maturity before that period hits, and then mm -hmm. we're able to harvest from them year round, but they really don't put on a lot of active growing until after the solstice, and then it's very small amounts of growing, and like you were saying, it does kind of depend sometimes on how much sunlight we're getting. We don't get a lot of growth on cold, cloudy days. It's sure. both just colder in the soil. So it, it makes the soil temperature too cold for the roots to want to move or to be able to move and grow. Mm -hmm. um, and then the photosynthesis is lower. So we do stockpile. Um, we try to get all of our winter greens planted in our high tunnels by uh, September. Okay. So we're we're really taking a lot of tomatoes and summer crops out of our high tunnels early to prioritize winter crops in them. And then mm -hmm. at the same time, we do have a few techniques that we can employ outside in the fields to uh, really keep additional greens going. So right now out in the fields, we do have Brussels sprouts and some kinds of cabbage as well that are really exceptionally hardy and we'll mm -hmm. be able to harvest them uh, throughout the winter. And then we have uh, storage crops in our high in, in our walking coolers. So we have things that we've already harvested. So butternut squashes and uh, carrots and onions and shallots, potatoes. They just, potatoes. they can be cellared and they last really yeah. long, right? Yep. I just don't think people have a, there is a misconception about fresh. Do you know what I mean? And people mm -hmm. don't understand how hardy some of these vegetables are and that they can be cellared and that they can be eaten 
you know, yeah. long after they're picked without losing really taste or flavor or nutrition, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how storage crops were uh, evolved. You know, um, apples are available year round, right? But they are harvested in September. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it, people are really used to apples. They're really used to onions and onions are also harvested in the summer. So people do, uh, we do get a lot of questions about the freshness of some of the storage crops that we're selling and it's just like in the grocery store, they they were harvested at their peak of freshness and kept with really uh, strict conditions. So we have different walking coolers that have different temperatures and humidity levels okay. to make sure that we're keeping them uh, in the best conditions possible. Okay, so I, have, I wanna go two ways because you're talking about keeping, like at what point, so you have 70 acres now, so what point did you build the facility to house the farm and and how did you go about doing that? Because that's it's a lot of money to start a farm. Do you know what I mean? And farming does not yield a ton of cash back. So how did you go about starting that, especially as a young mother? For every single season of Moon Valley Farm, I've heavily invested our profits back into the farm infrastructure generally. Mm -hmm. So um, that's been a main way. I've sort of viewed our infrastructure investments as investing in the next season, um, as in the next season's security, especially in times of climate change like we're seeing now. Our mm -hmm. high tunnel infrastructure to me is security in the winter months as well as security in the summer months and definitely security in the, the spring and fall months when we really don't know when to anticipate frost or the end of frost. So mm -hmm. we, can get, we can get started a lot more confidently and actually take on a lot fewer losses by prioritizing planting in our high tunnels. So anyway, I have invested each very strategically um, and sort of aggressively back into the farm every year. And that's that's been everything for in the past three years um, since I purchased this farm of my own after uh -huh. leasing land for eight years, I really sought opportunities to get grant funding to help fund some infrastructure because I knew now I was really able to invest in infrastructure now that I have a farm of my own. And that was the main reason that I wanted to purchase my own farm so that I could invest in this infrastructure because it really is security for us. Um, I say come hail or high water, <laughs> no matter what the weather is going to bring. Um, you just you just have no idea uh, what to plan for, but I'm sure it's going to be either drought or deluge or hail, right? One or the other. <laughs> so um, either way, having walk-in coolers and high tunnels helps. So we've done everything from a cost share program through the county NRCS to help us invest in some high tunnels. They've helped us with three of them. Uh, to state resources like the organization Marbidco that helped us fund uh, two of our walk-in coolers. 
Um, and so we, we've looked for resources, we've put in our own money and we've looked for ways to help as well. And shout out to my county, um, Frederick County um, Economic Development, the ag section, they put some money for us too um, into it. one of the things is a backup generator. So it'll mm. kick on um, to help our walk-in coolers if we lose power. Um, so there's been a lot of opportunities that I've been able to utilize since, since purchasing this farm to invest in this infrastructure. Well, you know, I think a lot of counties that have the ability to have agriculture, you know, recognize the value. You know, I know Montgomery County has a huge ag uh, tourism program and um, mm -hmm. I'm sure Frederick has something very similar because the more people value the agriculture. I mean, it's better for the environment and it's, you know, better for everyone, you know, animals and climate and how we live our lives. Uh, but getting the lay person involved in it and appreciating it and then finding funding for it so that more and more people get into it is so important. Yep. Otherwise, it's going to go for development. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, I totally agree. Now, you became involved with the Governor's Ag Commission. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why you got involved? Yeah, so the governor has uh, representatives from each sector of agriculture. So from equine to grain to vegetable production to dairy. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm the organic chair for that. So I'm representing organic agriculture throughout the state, and that does include organic vegetables and herbs, like what I grow here. Um, and then also organic dairy, organic grain, you know, organic anything. Um, mm. So each chairperson gives a monthly report to the governor and to the other members of the committee. And, uh, and that's both written and an oral report in person um, at the Maryland Department of Ag in Annapolis and mm -hmm. and then sort of any important notes from directly from farmers in the ag sector go to the governor to just stay informed. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like that relationship is a lot of value? It really helps you, helps the other farmers, helps the other people in the business, but also helps the government sort of keep enough data to help you out? So I used to be involved in some social justice organizations back in college. And um, and I think that, it, you know, when you're trying to advocate for your cause, there's right channels to go down and there's, you know, or more effective channels to go down and there's less effective channels to go down. Like Mm -hmm. Growing up a post on social media might not be very effective because you're not actually reaching the people who have agency to make that change. But mm -hmm. for me, I felt like accepting this appointment was the right, more effective pipeline for change because I had a direct pipeline where I could tell somebody who is making decisions about my business and organic agriculture and agriculture throughout the entire state. And mm -hmm. here I want to note that we are in an extremely important state because of the Chesapeake Bay being in the Chesapeake Bay watershed really, really matters. Um, and, and it's and so, health and it's health matters, you know, yeah. I mean, it really does. And I think 
there's, and you can talk to this, but there's sort of this myth out there that like the Chesapeake is all better, but it's not, (laughs) obviously, I know, I know, but it, so can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, people are probably like, you're a farmer, what does it have to do with the Chesapeake? But can you explain like why the health of the watershed means so much for you and what you do? The Chesapeake Bay is affected by all our runoff, you know, and that's runoff meaning, you know, anything that's not absorbed into the soil and 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 ends up into a waterway and all of our waterways end up ultimately in the Chesapeake Bay. So Um, agriculture is responsible for some amount, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but some amount of that runoff, um, of course, industry is, of course, homeowners are, of course, you know, roadways, et cetera. But agriculture is a huge portion of the runoff. And at the same time, in, in my opinion, we're some of the most prepared to, um, to mediate the the runoff from everyone because we know plants we know how water moves we uh, are in charge of stewarding the land and i think especially because we're in such a delicate and important region we're stewarding the land in the largest estuary in north america that mm-hmm. is that is just such an important region. It it should be much much more diverse, and feeding us really sustainably much more than it is. Um, and farmers have the ability to filter all of that runoff on our own properties on the on the land that we're stewarding. So, um, for example, like one one sort of obvious thing that farmers could do is plant uh plant around the waterways right so mm-hmm. create buffer strips of deep rooted grasses uh bushes and trees around waterways which filter the the uh, runoff really naturally so it won't mm-hmm. it'll trap those things so that it doesn't make its way into the waterway and then that'll create clean water so it's sure we can use plants and animals to our advantage to um, to really filter the waterways. And we, as stewards of the land, know how to do that better than anyone. Okay, I love that. I mean, it's so important. And I think, you know, like we, I've had um, oyster farmers on the show, you know, hearing about these natural aquifers and how people can participate, you know, whether you're composting or getting, you know, bringing the shells to a drop-off point, things of that nature. I think it's it's so important. Can we talk a little bit, because you have this farm, um, and this is not something you and I have discussed before, but what do you do about gleaning and like ugly vegetables and things that are totally usable, but maybe do have a little hole in them? What do, what do you do with those? Because they're perfectly usable. They're just not pretty. So what do you do with all that? We've done a lot of different things over the years. <laughs> um, we actively sell seconds. So um, we we have discounted prices for either, you know, individual portions or large volumes of produce seconds. And that becomes uh, a larger number, especially when you're talking about our sweet potatoes or something that we've harvested tens of thousands of pounds of. Um, right. And so we do that. That's one 
thing, but there's almost always extra. We have a ton of produce here all the time. So we work with a couple of different nonprofit organizations, including one that actually has gleaning in, uh, in its name. And we've donated, at least in 2023, we donated well over $30,000 worth of produce to that organization alone Wow! Um, to go to people who are food insecure. So we, uh-huh. we definitely try to avoid composting. <laughs> uh produce as much as possible the produce that's edible i mean there's a lot of thirds or things like when tomatoes get an actual gash in it it's not food safe anymore so we'll compost things like that but if anything is actually really edible and um you know we try to find a home for it what's the name of the organization um it is (laughs) i don't okay look it up i'm very curious yeah, so let me see. Because I will tell you, I do work with a comp- uh, with an organization called Food Rescue, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, I mean, it's a organization that's run. It's not run by volunteers, but everybody who activates in it are volunteers. So every day I get a notification that's like, here are all the places that have stuff that can be picked up, and here's where you can take it. And people are like, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that, and it's just. They make it so easy to participate. Do you know what I mean? So you can stop yep. at a bakery that has too much bread or, you know, mm-hmm. um, the convention center has a bunch of platters and then, you know, you just drop it off at, at uh, DC Central Kitchen or you stop it out at one of the house, like whoever will take it and use it. And it's just, it's so brilliant and it's so necessary. Anything we can do to lower food waste is just so important. It is. And um, actually, I so the organization that I was referring to is called the Gleaning Project. Okay. Um, And we also work with several other organizations. We actually just launched something that I'm pretty excited about, which is a donation subscription. Um, and oh, I love that. that. So for $30 a month or a dollar a day, right? Uh, anyone can join this donation subscription and we have four different organizations that the donations will be donated to. So we're working with the Linda Ben Foundation, who is getting food to food insecure families in PG County, Title I schools. Uh Um, We're working with the Gleaning Project. We're working with uh, Frederick Food Security Center and the Enoch Pratt, um, it's a free, it's within their library, it's a free kitchen, I think it's called a fridge project, but it's going to transform from just a free fridge to an entirely free grocery store. So we have several people who have signed up, mostly our, our current CSA members who have signed up to pay an additional $30 a month to get a box of this high quality organic produce to people who can't afford it. Um, so in addition to donating, we're asking our community to also donate because we want to increase our impact from what we can afford to donate and to, you know, to really getting some first, um, you know, not just seconds or thirds quality produce to people, but, but getting that high quality produce to people who need it. Well, do you mind um, sending me all that info? Because we'll put all of that in the list, areyouana.com. So just the who, Perfect. what, where, why, when. Like, I 
it's so exciting that you're doing that. Okay, we have a couple minutes left. So let's give the 411 on the CSA. And then I, I'd be hard pressed not to mention that you are in a bunch of restaurants. So that's like a total other revenue stream and not an easy one, I want to add. So let's give the 411 on the CSA and how people can get involved or get it or be a part of it or learn about it, et cetera. And then let's just talk about how you got involved with restaurants. Okay, great. So our CSA program is extremely flexible. It's a pay by the week. You get a small, medium or large box. You can get a weekly box or a biweekly box. Um, you can get veggies, you can subscribe to sourdough bread, eggs, gourmet mm-hmm. mushrooms, microgreens, um, all sorts of things. So are you, ag- is that aggregating from other farms? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. In the case of the microgreens, we're growing them, but yeah, we're, we have fruit from other farmers as well. So all farmers we know and trust that are in the region and, um, so you can also get everything a la carte in an online farmer's market uh, option. Our CSA program is also really flexible because we pre-pack the box and load it on every Thursday. And you have from mm-hmm. Thursday to Sunday at midnight to make swaps in your box to make it more like what you want. Um, oh, cool. So if there's Brussels sprouts in your box and your family hates them, you can trade it for carrots or spinach or something else so that you get more what you would like that week. That makes sense. I love that. Okay. How'd you wind up in a chef's kitchen? Not easy. It's hard to break in. It was 2013. So my second year in business and I had an extra whole bunch of radishes. Like I was saying earlier, you just sometimes miscalculate (laughs) how much of a crop to grow. And I had all these beautiful radishes. My CSA couldn't eat anymore. And one of the volunteers on my farm, so we were extremely volunteer run at that point, um, she worked at Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore. With Spike, sure. Yep, of course. And so she said, well, let's, let's harvest them, wash them and take it over there and see if they can use them. Um, and we agreed on a price, they purchased them. And that's, that really started, uh, my relationship with selling to restaurants. I really enjoyed selling to restaurants because I didn't have to stand at a farmer's market. And at that time I still had my two toddlers and I could not figure out how I would have these, like actually carry two children and man a farmer's market stand (laughs) at the same time. So I would uh, put the produce in my minivan, um, put the kids in there, they would hold the the, uh, invoice and I would carry in the veggies. Um, Mm -hmm. So growing for restaurants really aligned with my passion too for really specialty and unique veggies that I was growing. So they really liked all the cool herbs and all the odd veggies that I would uh, enjoy growing. And so then did you start now, you still supply to restaurants, correct? Oh, yeah, we sell to over 100 restaurants, actually. It's a huge part of our business. I I love selling to them. Uh, Do I love that. That's amazing. Are there do they have requests? Do they say, hey, I really want, you know, this kind of offering? I mean, listen, we can now buy microgreens, you know, 10 years ago, the only place you saw a microgreen was in a restaurant. And now you sell them to the public and you can buy them more readily available, but are there certain things that you're like, huh, that's a new one. 
I didn't know about that. I'll, I'll try that. Well, there's a lot of new ones. And sometimes when we look it up, um, you know, we say this really aligns with what we do. This looks delicious. We can grow it. It grows in our region. Um, yes, we can do it. We get requests for all sorts of things and I can't say yes to all of them, but, um, I, I say yes to as many that make sense with our, with our growing system. Sure. Okay. What, um, so name a couple of restaurants in DC, just so people know what we're talking about. Cause I know you yeah. have some Michelin star restaurants. Oh, absolutely. So Oyster at Oyster, the Dabney, Tale of Goat, Reveler's Hour, Maketo, Centralina. Yes. Yeah, Everybody. Mean, so many. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Tell everybody, please, where they can find you, where they can find you online, where they can follow you on Instagram, all the things so they can stay up. And um, and I'll wrap up when you're all done. Uh, but this has been very exciting. I'm very excited about that program you're doing with the CSA. I think that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, me too. Okay, so you can find us on Instagram at Moon Valley Farm, on Facebook, uh, facebook.com Moon Valley Frederick. And <laughs> our website is moonvalleyfarm.net. Excellent. And obviously you can find everything that Emma is doing uh, at restaurants all around the DC metro area um, and follow her. And of course, follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, threads, all the things, because everything you heard here today, you will also find on the list, areyouonit.com. Tune into Foodie and the Beast every Sunday at 11 a.m. on 1500, or you can just click on the link and see us there. I uh, want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, in next show, you'll see us at our new residency. It's a secret for the moment, but we'll be there shortly. Uh, be safe out there and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.